The book is called Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. The author is Deborah Cohen, a professor at Northwestern University just north of Chicago. The subject matter, according to words on the book's cover, is about the reporters who took on a world at war. Professor Cohen primarily focuses on four American journalists who traveled the world in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. H.R. Knickerbocker, Vincent Jimmy Sheehan, Dorothy Thompson, and John Gunther. According to publisher Random House, these reporters landed exclusive interviews with Hitler, Mussolini, Nehru, and Gandhi. And these same reporters helped then shape what Americans knew about the world. Professor Deborah Cohen, where is the Hotel Imperial? The Hotel Imperial is on the Ringstrasse in Vienna. It still is there. And in the 1920s and 1930s, it was one of the place where, places where reporters gathered, foreign reporters gathered especially, to swap news and entertain uh, tips from the kinds of people who came by to offer them uh, the latest news out of Romania or palace intrigue or whatever else. Is it, are you references in your book that uh, they possibly planned the assassination of um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand? Yeah, that, exactly. That was one of the rumors about the Imperial. And in general, you know, what's important is that there was a kind of atmosphere of intrigue about the place. So it was the kind of place where you walk in and the turpentine brokers are there in the back room and the jewel dealers and the 60 newspapers hung on rattan racks. So it was the fanciest of the places that the reporters gathered. Their usual nighttime haunt was a place called the Cafe Louvre, which was right across the street from the telegraph and uh, telephone agency. So if you got a good tip... It was really a good tip. You could run across uh, and telephone it into you know your bureau in Paris or London or wherever you did that. Why did uh, Why did you call your book the last call at the Hotel Imperial? Well, for a couple of reasons. One of them was because it was the reporters' hangout, but also because in the at the Angelus in the, in the annexation of Austria. The Hotel Imperial was a place that Hitler was very focused on. And so as soon as the tanks roll into Austria, the place where Hitler establishes his headquarters is not in the chancellery, but rather he takes a suite. They kick out all the tourists. He takes a suite at the Hotel Imperial just up one floor from where the reporters used to hang out. And people were always making you know, 1936, 1937, it was pretty clear to this group of reporters that annexation or the Anschluss was in the air. After all, Hitler had forecasted on the first page of Mein Kampf. And so people made kind of last calls on Vienna, going to hear their music or walking through the streets and thinking about a world that they recognized would soon be gone. When did you get the idea for this book? I got the idea for the book when I went to the extraordinary archives um, at the University of Chicago, where John Gunther's papers are deposited. 
And I had gone there because I was really interested in Gunther's 1949 Death Be Not Proud, which is a kind of landmark in the history of publishing, a taboo-breaking book, one of the first, if not the first, kind of secular memoirs of illness and death to be published. And in a later edition of the book, Gunther writes about the thousands of letters that he got from people about the book. So I went originally to the University of Chicago's archives to see those. And when I was there, I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to look at the you know, miscellaneous correspondence for 1937. And in that correspondence, so not in the name correspondence, you know, with FDR or Churchill or, um, you know, his friends, other important notables, but just miscellaneous correspondence. There was a letter from Nehru, later to become the first prime minister of India, um, then a really important nationalist leader and the head of the Indian National Congress, writing an intimate letter to John Gunther, whom he didn't know about the death of his wife a couple of months earlier. And I thought, this is the miscellaneous correspondence. I mean, this was just endless, endless riches. So, for instance, again, in that 1937 folder, there was the Czech foreign minister of the time, Jan Masaryk, writing to Gunther, making jokes about the abdication crisis, which had just happened in Britain, um, and making, you know, fresh comments, shall we just say, about the nature of the British monarchy. So I began there in those archives. Uh, it turned out that there was not just a professional archive, but also really a deeply personal archive. So altogether, that archive is about 250 large boxes of material, um, including tens of thousands of little, oftentimes significant notes that Gunther scribbled down. And it became clear from working in those archives that I couldn't really just write about Gunther. Or rather, I didn't want to. I didn't think that the, that the, the book worked without writing about his friends and the friends whom he was closest to were Vincent Sheehan, Dorothy Thompson, H.R. Knickerbocker. And then, of course, there was the story of his marriage to Francis Feynman Gunther. What did you think of Francis? You know, I didn't... I mean, Francis Feynman Gunther was one of those people who a lot of people had opinions about. And that's always intriguing for the historian. You get really a Rashomon-like uh, quality. So, for instance, the British officials, so the Gunthers go on a trip to Asia in 1937 and 1938, and British officials in the India office, uh, you know, whose control over India is being challenged by an increasingly aggressive and successful nationalist movement, view John Gunther at first as someone who is going to be bolstering um, the British reputation, British rule against, you know, Americans who are questioning it and nationalists who, around the world who are questioning it. But they very quickly recognize that a significant person in how John Gunther is going to think about India is his wife, Frances. And so we're issuing various warnings, you know, don't neglect Mrs. Gunther. She has a lot of influence over what he thinks. So on the one hand, she was an immensely smart, and as John Gunther himself often said, theoretically sophisticated person who was well-read, you know, in all of the social theory of the time. Um, 
she was also someone who suffered from an epic case of writer's block. So the dynamic between the Gunthers was that she sort of worked almost hammering out his ideas, or as she would have put it, giving him ideas. And he was the writer. I mean, he was a man who wrote with such fluency and also with such uh, vivid depiction. So they had a kind of partnership, intellectual partnership, but it was a very fraught one. You wrote in your book, Francis was a Marxist, but also a Freudian. Explain. So part of the social theory that she imbibed as a young person was uh, Marxism. And she would have described herself uh, mostly as a socialist, although sometimes as a communist. So one of the places that she goes, the first place she goes, um, or intends to go when she lands in Europe, is the Soviet Union to see how the great Soviet experiment is working. So she at the same time, wasn't just someone who believed in economic analysis and materialist analysis, the idea that, you know, fundamentally that all explanation um, proceeds from an understanding of economic fundamentals. She thought those were important, and she constantly was um, urging her husband to take them much more seriously than he did. But she was also Freudian in that she was analyzed as a young woman uh, for the first time in New York. She was a student at Barnard. She was also a student at Radcliffe. She was also a student at Rice. She had a sort of checkered path through university education, um, kicked out because she was involved in pacifist activities at Barnard. Um, but one of the very fundamental things that she had taken from that analysis and the subsequent psychoanalyses that she had later on was the significance of Freud's ideas. And there, too, she was very sophisticated and well-read. When did you decide to feature these particular journalists and their time mostly in Europe? So early on in the book, it became clear that there was, as it were, an inner circle and an outer circle. And that inner circle, so Tom, Dorothy Thompson, John Gunther, Knickerbocker, and Vincent Sheehan were very good friends. And then they also shared uh, some very fundamental um, beliefs in common. I mean, they had a lot of arguments as well, and they differed on some very fundamental things. But one of the things that they all shared was a belief in the significance of the individual, and especially the individual as under attack from the combined forces of fascism especially, but for someone like Thompson and Knickerbocker from communism as well. So they also shared a sense that shame and that the kinds of prohibitions that they had grown up with were in some senses hampering the kind of free expression of humanity and that a lot of the a lot of what was going wrong was a result of the repression that people felt and so as Dorothy Thompson says very lyrically nothing that was human was alien to us meaning that the experiences that they were having many of them taboo things to write about were the sorts of things that people ought to be able to express. And in fact, if they didn't, 
that they were storing up all sorts of kind of psychosocial trouble, I guess is the way that we might put it now, for the future. So they were extremely attentive to the emotional sides of life. That was one of the things that in studying them was so, was really for me revelatory, which was that they were people experiencing the breakdown of the boundaries between the geopolitical events that they were covering and their own inner lives. What do you teach at Northwestern? I teach uh, history. So I was trained as a modern Europeanist specializing in modern uh, Britain and the British Empire and modern Germany. And then sort of added some Austrian history for this book to my portfolio. And of course, writing about Americans in Europe um, that was, you know, an, another step. But I like to, I like to always change what I'm doing with each project. And where are you from originally? Kentucky. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Where did you go to uh, school? Where did you go to get your PhD? Ah, uh, right. I went to college at um, Harvard, um, or as it was then, I guess Harvard Radcliffe. <laughs> um, I. Like Francis Gunther, by the way, um, I went. I did my PhD at Berkeley. Dorothy Thompson was married at one point to Sinclair Lewis. What was that marriage like? Well, as Dorothy Thompson says herself when she comes to write about the marriage later on for the uh, Atlantic, Lewis was a national hero and a personal tragedy. So it was a extraordinarily vexed marriage. Um, he was at that point, you know, one of the most famous American writers in the world, the first American to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And Dorothy Thompson herself had established, you know, a significant reputation in Europe. Um, Sinclair Lewis was constantly worried that though that his wife was. Uh, excelling sort of beyond him and so you know was known to say things like well everyone thinks about me as being Mr. Dorothy Thompson I mean, he's an extraordinarily funny brilliant man um, and for Dorothy Thompson this was just an impossible dynamic because she herself was a person you know who had a sense of the role that she was supposed to be playing on the world stage and the idea that she had a husband you know, who's constantly jealous of his prerogatives in that regard, you know, was unhelpful, to say the least. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Where was her anchor job? So she had begun um, as a stringer for the Philadelphia Public Ledger. Um, she got that job when she had a whole string of little coups. So she went over to Europe in the early 20s. She hadn't worked as a reporter. She'd instead been a publicity agent. And I think that that's significant because what we see is that a number of the women who go over to become American foreign correspondents and some of the eminent names of their day actually start in publicity back in the U.S., not in newspapers. 
So Dorothy Thompson had an extraordinarily good sense of the American market. It's one of the things that John Gunther marvels about about her, which is that Dorothy Thompson can, can write anything about Europe and make it relevant for an American readership. And this was in general, I would say, a, a kind of talent that this group of reporters had, which was that they hadn't come from, you know, the Ivy League or from uh, the East Coast. They'd come from the places that, you know, where they knew very well the people for whom they were writing. So Jimmy Sheehan, for instance, was born in and grew up in Pena, Illinois, which is uh, is a mining town in the southern part of the state, um, population 7,500. H.R. Knickerbocker was from Yoakum, Texas. Who did he write for? He died early at age 51. What was that all about? So Knickerbocker was, grew up, as you say, in Yoakum. His father was a Southern Methodist minister. Knickerbocker could swear in every European language and carried a copy of the Bible, also in his suitcase. Um, he was a prodigiously talented reporter. So he began uh, at the Newark Daily News. He then was reporting He uh, for the Philadelphia Public Ledger. He was Dorothy Thompson's assistant uh, in Berlin when she became the first woman, American woman, to head up a major overseas news bureau. She was, he was also probably Dorothy Thompson's lover. Um, he then went to report for William Randolph Hearst international news service so that was the international arm of the hearst enterprise and he worked for hearst until 1941 when he finally resigned the job saying that reporters have more reason than anyone else to work for the defeat of fascism and that he couldn't tolerate any longer Hearst's uh, right-wing views and and actually of course her sneaking sympathy for fascism you know you talk about the interviews that uh, some of these folks had with mussolini and hitler and Nehru and Gandhi, who who was able to interview Hitler and when? So Knickerbocker interviewed Hitler, um, as did Dorothy Thompson. So And they had very different impressions of the man. Famously, Dorothy Thompson's interview with Hitler in 1931 was one of her, I would say, few mistakes of judgment in these years. Um, which is that she saw Hitler. She'd been trying to get to see Hitler since 1923, right after the Beer Hall Putsch. And finally, she was able to get an interview with him in 1931. And she described him as a startling insignificance, you know, the very prototype of the little man. And she went on to say, to cast him in feminized terms, to say, I bet he crooks his finger when he drinks his tea. And essentially what she was came to the conclusion was that Hitler would never really amount to anything. This was not an uncommon lapse of judgment for observers, both German and also foreign, because this was the land of Goethe, of you know, of Thomas Mann, of Einstein. How could this insignificance rule a great co- country like Germany? So Knickerbocker, though, who sees Hitler around the same time, has a very different impression of him. Knickerbocker, too, had been at the beer hall putsch. He happens to just wander into that beer hall in Munich while the putsch is happening. And he was actually in Munich. He kind of stepped away from the newspaper business and was going to train as a psychiatrist because what he wanted to understand were human motivations in a much more substantial and consequential fashion. 
but he goes into that fear hall and then he's really right back into reporting. So for Knickerbocker, Hitler, he had been warning of the dangers of Hitlerism through the 1920s. Um, he sees Hitler and he says, okay, you might dismiss this man for what he looks like, which is a second rate DA in a small Texas county, meaning an ambitious mediocrity. But in fact, he's extraordinarily dangerous. And Knickerbocker's warnings about Hitler really earned him the contempt of a number of you know, fellow journalists, of newspapers, of commentators who thought that he was just amping up the fear factor in order to get people to buy the papers. Because, of course, having these interviews, you know, it's, it's, it would be like Anderson Cooper flag to interview Putin at the moment. I mean, they were huge guts. How many of these writers, Dorothy Thompson, Francis Gunther, H.R. Knickerbocker, James Sheehan, John Gunther, how many of them thought that America, United States, should get in to the war in, you know, 38, 39 in Europe? Yes, this is a really good question. This is one of the things that they differed on, which was that Knickerbocker, Thompson, Sheehan all thought that the United States had a place needed to be engaged in the European war, whether that was sending weapons to the Spanish Republicans or whether that was, you know, sort of beginning the process of rearmament. Dorothy Thompson was constantly warning of the dangers of Hitlerism. So after her ill-fated interview, she became the person in America who was associated with raising the alarm about Hitlerism. Um, John Gunther was really on the fence and he was on the fence or as he put it because of the strong opinions of his wife Frances. Frances had become after their trip through Asia an ardent anti-imperialist, really someone who, for whom the British Empire was a historical crime on the level of Nazism. So she had become very good friends with Nehru. She would become one of the best-known exponents of the Indian Nationalist cause in the United States, helping to organize the sort of resurgent India League of America. She thought that, the, as I said, that the British had committed crimes over centuries um, that no one was reckoning with, you know, which is not unlike the kind of historical reckoning that's now happening in Britain about the British Empire. Um, and as a consequence, she thought, you know, let the Europeans fight this out. And again, this was not a, this was not an uncommon set of opinions to have among their milieu. Um, Jerome Frank, who was the head of the SEC um, and a trusted confidant of Roosevelt's also thought, you know, put America first, don't don't uh, allow the Europeans to again drag us into their conflicts. You know, are the British really all that much better than the than the Germans? At least the British will never permit there to be any kind of unity on the European continent because they're so jealous of their prerogatives. So for those reasons, Francis was felt, especially once the British began jailing Indian nationalists, Nehru among them, um, she felt 
you know, why, why should America enter the war? She would change her opinion later on. But John Gunther was really influenced by it. And he found himself in constantly uncomfortable positions in 1938, 1939, 1940, going to various meetings, including a meeting of the American America First group, the group that was anti-intervention. Um, and equally well, he was friends with a lot of British people and a lot of people who felt, as Dorothy Thompson did very strongly, that the United States should enter. Dorothy Thompson at some point turns to him in a conversation and says, oh, my God, are you an isolationist? Um, and so he he was very much on the fence and actually really relieved in 1941 when the U.S. finally entered the war because then the, his path became clear to him. What's the background on Sheehan, who uh, you say wrote a personal a book called Personal History, but also wrote a controversial biography of Dorothy Thompson and Sinclair Lewis. Yes, so Sheehan is a fascinating, brilliant character, Um, really very, very important journalist of this era and beyond. So Sheehan, as I said, he comes from Pana, Illinois, he is. He goes up to the University of Chicago on a scholarship. He then leaves America for Europe, um, reporting for, among other papers, for the Chicago Tribune. He tracks down the head of the Rifi, the uh, peoples who in northern Morocco, who were engaged at that point in, in a colonial, anti-colonial insurgency against their Spanish overlords. He manages to interview Abdul Krim, the head of the Rifi uh, peoples, not once but twice, really in crossing battle lines to get to him. He is very sympathetic to anti-colonial movements like the Rifi movement or like um, the uh, Indian national cause. He then goes on to write a book in 1935 entitled Personal History. And the reason Personal History is such an important book is that it provides a template for a lot of other Americans to examine their own lives, not just Americans, but also British people as well. So his problem in the book, as he puts it, is how to live a single life, his own individual life, in the midst of the collective. So what does the individual owe to the mass of suffering peoples? How should the individual actually use their life best? And here he's really tacking between the claims of Soviet communism um, and the kind of promise of a collective and between individualism with which he, Dorothy Thompson and uh, John Gunther, et cetera, have been raised. And trying to square what his moral obligations are. So as I said, this book really becomes a template. It wins the first National Book Award for biography as in the biography slash memoir category. Sheehan gets thousands and thousands of letters from people who adopt exactly his terminology as sort of quasi-socialist terminology about the long view and you know the the dilemmas of the individual and the the question about whether you should 
surrender your own individuality to the collective. He goes on to write a number of other kind of firsthand eyewitness accounts of what he's seeing. I think another marvelous book is um, Between Peace and the Sword, um, which is his account of watching the disasters of 1938 and the disasters of appeasement policy um, play out in the Spanish Civil War as in um, after the Munich Agreement. He's in Czechoslovakia. And as you say, one of his last books um, is a book entitled Dorothy and Red, which is his memoir of the marriage of Dorothy Thompson and Sinclair Lewis. And it's both a bestseller and controversial because he writes in extraordinarily frank terms about just how disastrous the marriage was, about Sinclair Lewis's alcoholism, about Dorothy Thompson's affair with a woman um, whom she has you know, over for a party and conducts an affair with over the course of the 1930s. Um, and what people say about it is it's the real-life version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which just gives you a sense of just you know, how destructive that marriage was for the two of them. And Sheehan says, you know, what is wrong with these people? This is what happens in any marriage. That, again, the theme that I started with um, which is to say that what they're what they're doing is really taboo breaking discussions of intimate and private life. That's one of the lessons that they take out of the 1930s. And I would argue that when we go to trace the genealogy of the Frank memoir, so the memoir that we know, really it begins in the 1930s with this defense of the legitimacy of writing about all aspects of human experience. This quote from your book, talking about John Gunther, uh, you say, I want power. John had confessed to Francis from Moscow in 1928, and in that he was hardly alone. Explain that one. I want power, he said. So this is what John is, Gunther is, is hinting at is really the dilemma of journalism. You know, maybe it's the, the dilemma of journalism in general, but it's certainly the dilemma of journalism in their period in the 1930s and arguably now as well, which is that one wants to be not just a witness and a bystander, but also to take some active part in events. And this crowd, this crew of journalists at the heart of my book do play a role in events, you know, whether it's warning the American public of the dangers of fascism, the rise of the dictators, um, they, so when, when Gunther is saying, I want power, what he means is he's toying with the idea of what he should actually do with his life. So he was always thinking about journalism as being a kind of part-time gig. What he really wanted to be, you know, echoes of Hemingway, was a novelist. So many of them did. You know, the novel is still the best use of your time. That's the sort of height of artistic writerly production. But what they're figuring out is what journalism can, in fact, contribute or as Dorothy Thompson says, journalism becomes the representative form of letters of the 1930s. So that whereas previously journalists wanted to be novelists, now novelists, um, and she's uh, naming in particular, um, uh, you know, the group of kind of realist novelists 
of her era, um, say, for instance, Steinbeck, want to be want to capture things with journalistic fidelity to details. So, yeah. So for Gunther, it's really for him. It's it's in it's a decision about what journalism can actually do. You write uh, newspaper man John Gunther had noticed quickly. Uh, grew tired of witnessing events, uh, and they wanted to play a part. And how much of that applies to today? Well, I think that we can see that in a number of ways. I mean, there's a journalism of warning. So I was just thinking about someone like Masha Gessen of The New Yorker. Um, and there the ambition is you know, to try to put together the, a series of events that people might not see as a succession or might not see as related. So there's an analytical job that's being done in order to make the warning. So you put together Georgia in 2008 and Crimea in 2014, and Syria and Aleppo, the bombing of Aleppo in 2016, and now to Ukraine in 2022. And you have a pattern of Russian revanchisme and um, aggression. And that's very much what this group of journalists are doing as well, right? They're putting together the Italian invasion of Abyssinia and the Spanish Civil War and the annexation of Austria and saying, look, this is not going to stop. It, this is, there, ha- there will be a war. And they're, you know, they're, they're taking bets among themselves about when that war is going to break out. So the joke is, are you an end of 37er or a beginning of 38er? Um, or as Jimmy Sheehan says, the river of Ebro in Spain flows to the Thames, meaning there's no way to escape. But as you watch what's going on right now in Ukraine, and you're right in the middle of, you know, your book is out and you've spent the last several years writing about it and thinking about it, what do you see that's similar? I think that what that it's precisely the ability to put together. So for journalism, it's the ability to put together a set of what might have seemed like disparate events in order to tell a coherent narrative and to supply a kind of analytic focus. Um, I think for a long time since I've been writing this book, so really for the past eight years, one of the things that has struck me is how different the emotional style of our moment is from the time that I grew up in, you know, from the 60s and the 70s and arguably even the 80s, which was, you know, we we exist in a much more public emotional moment. And there's a way in which the kind of patterns of existence that this group of journalists are documenting are which seemed foreign actually to me i have to say when i started the book the idea that you would be you know sitting around thinking whether you were more like hitler or whether your husband was more like hitler and that just seemed far-fetched and sort of like psychoanalysis run riot now that doesn't seem so hard to imagine uh as a ways in which people thought so the the ways in which the boundaries between big geopolitical events and intimate life have broken down are really significant. If you tend not to like 
the New York Times over the years, you bring up the name Walter Durante. Indeed. Walter Durante was the Times' Moscow correspondent and you know, in later years has justifiably become quite an infamous character for downplaying and then actually fundamentally denying um, the famine in Ukraine. Um, so Durante, partly because he was, you know, very sympathetic to Soviet leaders, he had a lot of access to them, um, including to Stalin. He, when the first reports are coming out about famine, he just says, first of all, first of all, he says, you know, what can you expect? This is, you know, if you're going to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. And then when the young Welshman, um, Gareth Jones, goes out and brings some of the earliest foreign reports about the famine, Durante works to discredit him. And I'd say, you know, the H.R. Knickerbocker here plays a really important role, which is to magnify uh, the reports of Gareth Jones. So he's one of the reporters. When Gareth Jones comes back from Ukraine, from the Ukraine to Berlin, what Knickerbocker does is he reports a story saying this young man has these these experiences to relate. There's no reason to imagine that those aren't accurate, which earns him from his friend Walter Durante a reproof. You know, what are you talking about? These things aren't happening. But Walter Durante is one of the really famous instances of getting it wrong in a quite epic sense. Getting it wrong because you have on ideological blinders getting it wrong because you live in Moscow and you're not actually willing to, um, you know, admittedly break the rules and tramp out to the countryside. Getting it wrong because presumably you actually have lots and lots of people telling you things that you simply don't entertain. You say that some 8 million people starved to death uh, in Ukraine. Um, and Walter Durrani was an Englishman. Uh, did that have anything to do with his attitude about this? And how could 8 million people be starved to death and somebody not see it? Well, this is exactly right. People, Plenty of people did see it. I mean, the number of foreign reporters by this point, restrictions on the foreign press were quite draconian. At the same time, someone like Gat Jones just, you know, gets off the train and starts wandering around and, and observing so how can you not see it? You can, you know, as we know, living in our own big country, you can sit in a capital somewhere and close your ears and blind your eyes. Um, I don't think being an Englishman actually had anything to do with it. I think, you know, there were plenty of people who were sympathetic to communism, like Francis Gunther's friend, the really eminent journalist, Louis Fisher, who isn't as bad as Walter Durante on this subject. But similarly, you know, when later in life, as he kind of understands what has happened, the historic crimes of Stalinism, says, I was guilty of elevating the machine and forgetting the people. Back to John Gunther from OAN. We had done a podcast uh, with Mr. Yes, I heard it with Ken Cuthbertson, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. And um, and I actually had a copy of uh, US, uh, Inside USA, which is really hard to get. But as you write about, he did USA. 
I mean, he did Inside Africa and Russia, South America and all these books. But then you say that the book that uh, is only one that's still in print is Death Be Not Proud. Uh, that's right. You know, after Gottlieb's piece, Inside USA is now back in print. So it's come back into print um, because, as you said, it was so difficult to get a copy of Inside USA, which was a book that you could have gotten, you know, for 50 cents <laughs> pretty much in any yard sale. That was a book that sold, you know, more than a million copies and was a book of the month club main choice. So it was absolutely everywhere. So but that- yes, it's, it's, so it's now come back into print, but the only one that has been continuously in print since the moment that it was published is Death Be Not Proud. Have you read it? Death Be Not Proud? Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, I've read every one of Gunther's books. Um, Death Be Not Proud is, in a sense, really was the beginning of this book for me, which is that I had read it as a child. My mother had been assigned it uh, in high school in 10th grade in a civics class. It was required reading in so many American schools. Were you required to read it? Johnny. In school. Do you, no, did you ask yeah, me? No, yeah. no, I was not. No, yeah. and, and this is, uh, I'm sorry, I missed your question. Um, no, but I find it interesting that uh, it's still in print and it must obviously sell or they wouldn't keep it in print. Oh, it absolutely sells. Yeah. Um, we weren't able, I did a piece for The Atlantic about the significance of the book and we weren't able to get HarperCollins um, to confirm sales figures, unfortunately. Um, but it's certainly sold, has, you know, sold in the hundreds of thousands over the duration. And as you say, it's probably more than that. Um, but just to be on the conservative side, yeah, this was a hugely significant book because really it was the first time that illness and death you know, had been written about in this kind of memoir fashion in a secular form um, for very large audiences. At this point, when John Gunther publishes that book, he is one of the highest earning authors that Harper and Brothers has. And even that doesn't mean that the publisher thinks that they can actually print this book. So Volumes like this were in memoriam tracks. They were the kinds of things that you would publish privately, circulate to friends and to family. Um, But this was not something that was thought to be a fit subject for a general audience, not least because, as uh, the publisher asked, who is going to want to read this book? I mean, who is this for? And so they take it, partly because Gunther is such a hugely important figure for the house, And then, of course, what happens is the Death Be Not Proud becomes a bestseller because lots of people want to read it. And they feel that it's cathartic, that he is writing about things that they have experienced and have not been able to speak about. How old was his son, Johnny, when he died of geoblastoma brain tumor? He was um, 17 years old and he was diagnosed at the age of 16. They tried every medical possibility that was available at the time, including radiation, an early form of chemotherapy, um, a mustard gas treatment, which was, I think he was the first person with a brain tumor to be treated with mustard gas. 
the United States, um, consulted scores of doctors. Um, I mean, it was a horrendous, unimaginable tragedy. What impact did the death have on the marriage of Francis and um, John? So they had been separated since 1941, and they divorced finally in 1944. So they'd married in 1927, been uh, separated in 41, divorced in 1944. So they were already divorced and living quite separate lives at the point at which um, John called Francis. So Johnny was a student at Deerfield Academy, and the school had called John to say, your son is terribly, terribly ill. And at that point, they, of course, came back together in a sense to try to take care of him. First of all, to try to look for some kind of cure, which they both recognized was something they had to do, but it was, they knew in their heart of hearts that it was futile. And finally, also, when Johnny died, um, writing Death Be Not Proud was a kind of collective enterprise between the two of them as well. So Frances gave John all of the notes that she had made during Johnny's illness, her diary entries. Um, and he used those as well as the notes that he had taken. And as I said before, there were many, there, they had many conflicts over ownership of material. So she said when they were married that he used all of her best lines without giving her credit, you know, which is not an uncommon kind of d- dynamic to have in a writerly couple. Um, but they referred to Death Being Proud always as the Johnny book, meaning that it was neither of theirs, that it was their son's. So there are a couple of other things, personal things that you write through the book. One is drinking and the other is, uh, I suppose it could be sex life or affairs among this group. Go into some of that. How many of these characters that you wrote about had a drinking problem? Well, drinking drinking problems, I think, were ubiquitous among reporters um, in this moment. I mean, maybe in other moments as well, but especially in this moment. And some of the earliest kind of firsthand accounts that come out about alcoholism are actually written by reporters. And foreign correspondents are living an especially hard life because they are, you know, away from family and friends and they their work is unbelievably stressful, rushing to make deadlines, trying to figure out these dictators um, trying to figure out where to go next, what is going to happen. So drinking problems were really widespread. So Knickerbocker was an alcoholic. Um, I mean, I'm describing him that way because he described himself that way. He, in the end, goes to Alcoholics Anonymous and is, you know, feels like he's been restored onto a much better, better path in life. But that's at the very, very end of his life. Um, Jimmy Sheehan also notoriously drank too much. John Gunther drank, but he wasn't, he was able still to do his work. I mean, he has, you know, an incredibly productive career. Dorothy Thompson also drank like a fish, but more or less was able to continue working. Um, So there was the drinking. And as I said, the drinking, you know, as a kind of uh, drinking away the cares of the world. And then there was the sex and they, are 
taking part as young people in the first modern sexual revolution, right? It's not the 60s and the 70s, it's the 1920s. And they're living as well in the afterglow of Freudianism, where figuring out things like complexes and repressions is something that's just very much in the air and seems to be explanatory of human behavior. Now, you know, now people feel either contempt or um, (laughs) uh, worse about Freudianism, Um, many people, that it's a lot of, you know, mumbo jumbo, but that's not their historical experience. So, yes, so there's a lot of bed hopping. There's a lot of what we would view as promiscuity, what their parents would have viewed as promiscuity, um, abortions. Now, the interesting thing is, so how do I know all of this? It's because they wrote it down, and they wrote it down in great detail because they thought it was hugely important. So of those archives, I would say fully half of them are about private matters like these. And why did they think it was so important? It was because for them, it was their analysis of the relationship between the sort of big geopolitical patterns and intimate life that had to be worked through. So they were really witnessing the collapse of those boundaries. And what they were trying to think about is how do you put the world right? How do you re-enshrine the individual, the sort of value of individual life? That's part of what John Gunther is doing in Death Be Not Proud is saying 70 million dead in the first half of the 20th century. But look, here is an individual life, and here is why it matters. And it's the same thing as Sheehan writes about the tortuous marriage of Dorothy Thompson and Sinclair Lewis. He's saying these are the things that happen in private life, and we have to be able to talk about them. We have to destigmatize them. So that's very much a part of you know what they're up to. Um, They believed in a kind of freedom, too. And it was a freedom that came at a very, very high cost. They existed in a world where the distinctions between, um, you know, the quote-unquote homosexual and the heterosexual were much less sharp than they would become in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Again, in a way, probably these things dissolving again in our own moment. Um, But that there was an open season on having these experiences and trying to see what you could learn from them. They were greedy for experience. And that's a really important part of what made them function as a group. Knickerbocker died at about 51 years old. How? He dies in a plane crash. Um, Really a very tragic story. So he and his wife have just sort of repaired their marriage. He's gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. He's touring the United States in a kind of... um, uh, act two-man show with Walter Durante, with Walter Durante taking the pro-Soviet point of view and Knickerbocker arguing the anti-communist point of view. And he goes on a kind of junket to Indonesia where the Dutch are going to show a group of foreign reporters that the end, you know, that their version of colonial rule, which is limping to an end, is actually not so bad. Um, on the way to Indonesia, the British, then British, I'm sorry, Indian Prime Minister uh, Jawaharlal Nehru refuses to allow the plane that is carrying them to land in Indian territory because Nehru is sympathetic to the um, Indonesian nationalists. On the way back, the newspaper men who know Nehru 
telephone him and say, come on, <laughs> let our plane land, because otherwise we have to go a very securitist route and it's going to take us forever to get back to New York. Um, and Nehru assents because, among other things, you know, he knows how important these American journalists are to the reporting of the fate of India in the Western media. And the plane crashes um, outside of Bombay. As you went about your research, how far did you go to find things, new things, new discoveries? Did you go to the Hotel well, Imperial? Oh, I mean, I'm an, like many historians, I'm an archive hound. And so I go every place. I go, it's like the ultimate scavenger hunt, right? Any place that there could possibly be materials, that's where I go. So, and that's especially important in a case like the Gunther Archive, where it looks like it's kind of ready-made for you, right? Those 250 boxes. So you have to read all of those. And then you also have to go to the places where the material hasn't been um, curated at all, you know, in the same way or by the same hand, you have to go to the police archives. So I was in the police archives in Vienna. You have to go to the British Imperial archives to see what British Imperial uh, officials were making of the Gunthers as they said out on their Asian tour. Um, any place that I could find materials, uh, that's where I went. So it took a very, very long time. My daughter, who's now almost 16, was seven when I started the book, which, you know, seems like, a, I don't know, eight years, a long time. But you, did you go to the hotel? Oh, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. I was in Vienna for a summer and what did uh, working the, in the archives. What does the hotel look like now and, the, and where Hitler had his headquarters and all? Is that it, it commemorated? I'm not sure that's the word. But it, no, there's no there's no plaque announcing this fact. I mean, this is something you know, most uh, certainly most Viennese, um, you know, would prefer not to have to think about. Um, although the city itself was a red city, um, it was a socialist city. Um, the hotel is a very expensive hotel, very very spiffy. So if you go there now, you know, it's a luxury hotel. It was always a luxury hotel. But instead of having the, um, you know, imperial elite of the Habsburg Empire staying there, it's much more likely to be the kind of international financiers and, uh, you know, power brokers of our day. How do you read books like Inside USA and Africa and Russia? Inside USA is 900 pages. How do, where do you find time to do that? What's your technique? Oh, you, so, you know, part of my job, at least half of my job, is doing research and writing. So I teach students, undergraduates and graduate students. But for all of us, um, you know, and all of the historians in my department, writing is equally um, you know, it's supposed to take up a lot of your time. So um, I, th I think finding the time is actually less the problem oftentimes than figuring out how to organize it all. So in this case, you know, really thinking about how can I depict for the reader the ways in which these people move in and out of each other's lives in a way that you can follow it so that you have a sense both of big themes developing and also the kind of vagaries of human experience 
that they are encountering. So, I mean, for me, that was really balancing three things, which is there's the geopolitical story, the big, you know, kind of world history story. There's the private story, which is their entanglements with each other. And then there's the story of what they wrote. So I think that was always the that was always the the, the kind of balancing act. Which one of your journalists interviewed Trotsky? John Gunther interviewed Trotsky, and he it's a really delightful piece. I recommend it to anyone um, who you know wants to have a view of Trotsky, as it were, in the wild. So at that point, um, when Gunther interviews Trotsky, he has already been exiled to the Isle of Prinkopo um, off of the coast of Constant of Istanbul. Um, and John Gunther takes a paddle steamer out to Prinkopo um, to sit down with Trotsky. And itself getting an interview with Trotsky is a huge big deal. I mean, it's again a coup. Trotsky won't just see anyone. He certainly won't see anyone who works for the Hearst papers um, at, by that point, because Hearst um, has written unflatteringly about Trotsky, uh, unpredictably. Um, and Gunther goes out in April of 1932 to Prinkopo. And there are all sorts of obstacles to actually getting to see Trotsky. First of all, you have to see a secretary. You have to write down your questions. The secretary doesn't speak any English, so they have to be translated into French. And then you have to agree on them. And then finally, he gets up to go, gets up to the villa where Trotsky is in exile. Um, and he finds Trotsky, who he's expecting to be a sort of, you know, hardened uh, revolutionary, which is after all what the man is, instead to be a as sort of light as an air bubble, you know, someone who has a delightful presence and is, they, they talk and what Gunther says is he thinks that Trotsky is extremely astute on the question of, um, you know, the coming war. Trotsky is saying, yes, there's going to be a war. You can't, this effort at disarmament that is happening is completely futile. And he realizes something about Trotsky, which is that here's a man who, in a sense, stands outside of history, meaning that his his existence can't be explained by any kind of economic patterns, that this is a force of personality. And so like the rest of the individual leaders, um, you know, the Hitler, the Stalin, the Mussolini, Nehru, Gandhi, um, Trotsky for Gunther is one of those people who just by his very existence has really channeled history into different tides. And that sort of person is the kind of person you have to figure out if you're a reporter in the 30s, or you could argue if you're a reporter right now. Just think if you lived in Washington, you could go to the spy museum and see the ice pick that was used to kill him in Mexico. Uh, Indeed. Indeed. Next, yes, I used to live in Washington, so, yeah. Next question. Who interviewed Mussolini? So Knickerbocker interviewed Mussolini not once, but four times between 1931 and 1934. And Knickerbocker expected when he first saw Mussolini in 1931, he got an interview with him by doing what you did, which is you kind of butter them up. Um, especially the dictators who, as Knickerbocker says, are very sensitive people, very, very worried about um, their own 
reputations and not too worried about who else's reputation they wreck or who else they stick in prison. Um, so he gets an interview by writing to Mussolini and saying, your opinions on the economic worldwide depression are of more value to me than those of any other statesman. Please, will you see me? And, Nick, and Mussolini agrees. Mussolini later says that Knickerbocker is one of the only foreign reporters whose dispatches he reads all the way to the end because he finds them so prescient and so intelligent, which is true. Knickerbocker is a very lucid commentator on the worldwide depression. So he gets in there, he sees, Knickerbocker gets into the palace, he sees Mussolini, who is not a kind of Prussian officer type in his uniform, very formal, but instead very Greek areas, and presents a different kind of dilemma, which is, if you're Knickerbocker, you sort of like Mussolini when you interview him. I mean, you find him a smart, engaging person. And so how do you write about him when you know perfectly well that he's doing things like throwing socialists in prison and torturing people and, um, you know, leading the country in an entirely fascistic direction? So Knickerbocker is worried after he has that first interview that he's written too kindly about Mussolini. And then later on, he's feel, he feels that the most important thing to do is actually to keep Italy on the side of the British and the French. So, you know, Mussolini had at that point as much tension with Hitler as he did, you know, with, with um, the British and French governments. And so what Knickerbocker thought is what we have to do is keep Mussolini and keep the Italians at least in a neutral position. Have you started working on your next book? I have not, because I'm not sure what my next book is going to be. I'm racing through ideas. I feel like I'm speed, speed dating ideas. <laughs> um, you know, picking them up with great fervor and then discarding them. So it oftentimes is like this for me, which is I have a lot of stuff I'm interested in. And so I'll do some preliminary investigations and think, nope doesn't work because as you know if you're going to spend eight years doing something or 10 years doing something or however long it takes you really really have to feel that you know you're eager to know everything and that you really want to live in the middle of your subject the uh, book is called last call at the hotel imperial the subtitle is the reporters who took on a world at war and our guest is Professor Deborah Cohen from Northwestern University, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.